Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. For he entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowds he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Can I stand here now? Yeah, okay, great. So I teach Latin to middle schoolers, fifth through eighth grade, and outside of my classroom is the lost and found for the upper school students. At this time of the year, the bin is overflowing with junk, pens, pencils, jackets, and uniforms, and in a metaphorical sense, other things are lost as well. Students have lost their love of learning and their excitement. Some of them have lost any hope of getting good grades and the iPhone that was promised to them if they got straight A's. Uh, Teachers lost their patience a long time ago. Uh, To prepare for this message, I checked the lost and found bin to see what I would find, and I kid you not, there was a pair of underwear. (laughs) And I'm like, what kid loses their underwear at school? These things have been misplaced by their owners. They are lost. But being lost, of course, is not just a spatial problem, it can also be a feeling. As Pastor Sam mentioned, six months ago, I went on sabbatical. And during that time, I met with the elders so they could know how to pray for me. And at that meeting, I told them I felt lost. I told them I felt lost. Now, since then, I woke up for three months straight at seven in the morning, went to a coffee shop, wrote, 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 went home, played with Arlo, had some dinner, went to a bar, drank, 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 (laughs) wrote, 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 wrote. And in the morning, I'd wake up and clean up everything I wrote at night and keep going. I wrote 270 pages on plague and religion and completed my degree. I started to exercise and get my cholesterol in check. And I started teaching Latin full-time. But throughout the last six months, this passage and this short, short man, Zacchaeus, clung to my mind like a haunting melody. So somewhere, I think in my heart, I thought there was an escape valve for lostness hidden in this passage. So I wanted to end my sabbatical by walking through this passage together. So please join me in a word of prayer. Uh, God, we come to this place and we just want to start with where we're at. The kids have been crazy today, um, yelling and screaming, but they're so lovely. But I know sometimes what they can do is make our hearts a little bit crazy too. So we just want to start simple this morning. God, you love to dwell with your people. You want to be in this place, meeting us exactly where we're at in our craziness, in our tragedy, in our glories, and in our triumphs. We thank you that you have poured out your spirit on your church and your presence is here in a powerful and in a special way. We pray that what would happen this morning is you would open our eyes 
to be able to catch a glimpse of who you are and help us by the power of your spirit to see some of the areas that we need to bring and surrender before you. We thank you again for this morning. We thank you for every person here. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. So our lives have always been punctuated by dramatic and frightening examples of lostness. I remember as a kid eating Honey Nut Cheerios with milk poured from a carton with a face on the side of it of a missing child. (laughs) And those faces were a warning that if you don't listen to your parents and if you talk to strangers, you will be lost forever. And then in middle school, we took these uh, programs called D.A.R.E., Drug Abuse Resistance Education, and the platonic ideal of a lost person in my mind became a drug addict or a gambling addict or some other addict addicted to something. And because of their addiction, they could no longer hold down a job. They alienated their families, and they're now living out on the streets. These people were lost to addiction. Now, as we get older, a new image of lostness haunts us, especially as our parents and grandparents age. You all know what I'm alluding to. We worry about people whose memories and mental faculties start to fade. They wake up in the morning not knowing where they are or who they are, even though you've been with them every day. They're lost in their minds. Now, these are dramatic examples of lostness, and perhaps some of us can relate to them personally through the things that we've experienced. But oftentimes, these dramatic examples have a negative effect on us. They act like a veil covering our eyes from seeing an important and a deep truth. And that truth is this. Even though on the outside, our lives may look put together, we shower almost every day and we do our best to dress well, on some deep level, we feel lost. And for me, over the past few years, this feeling kind of crept up and crept up and crept up like an ominous fog. So over my sabbatical for the last six months, I thought about why I felt this way and this is what I came up with. Maybe you can relate, maybe you can't, but this is what I'm going to say. So first, why did I feel lost? Number one, my relationships. Most of the relationships in my life at this point are old, old friendships, old family members. And when we were younger, we would get into these fights about easy and fixable things like, hey, when we all go out, you pay your share of the bill or you're not coming out with this again. Like, okay. Or it'd be like, hey, you got a phone, call me once a week to let me know how you're doing. Okay, mother, I will call you once a week. Or when you get married, the prototypical, put the toilet seat down or whatever, you know. Fix it and you can move on. Now, do you know what kind of fights I get into? They go like this. Seriously? Seriously? Again? 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 Why do we have to fight about this over and over again? Now fights center around my core personality and my core habits. Why are you so impatient? Why can't you help out more? Why don't you ever apologize first? I've been this way for 37 years. I don't know why I'm like this, but this is who I am. These are not easy, fixable, situational fights. They are about who I am at the core of my being. And I don't know how to change. So the fights always end the same way. I'm sorry, I'll try better. But what does that mean? I'm still going to be the same person tomorrow. But it's not just fights in terms of relationships. Uh, Last month, my mom came to stay with us. And without fail, every time my mom comes to stay with us, we crack open a bottle of wine, we drink a lot of it, and then we talk late into the night. And for my mother, it becomes like uh, liquid courage. And she says all the stuff that she's been holding up since the last time. We drank together. So last time we talked, my mom was like, Fred, I'm very lonely. I'm very bored. 
my dad passed away 10 years ago. I'm very lonely. I'm very bored. Now, I know that this has been the case for some time, but to hear her say it aloud, I felt kind of helpless. Like, well, what can I do? Like, I live in New York. You live in Maryland. On the day-to-day, I just can't help you that much. And I realized that as we age, as we get into our midlife, we start facing impossible problems and the people in our life start facing impossible problems. Depression, uh, divorce, unemployment, unfixable loneliness, and there are no easy answers. And as you're placed in that situation, you feel a sense of helplessness and hopelessness, and you are constantly being confronted with your own limitations. I can't get out of this thing And I love these people, but I can't help them. So I felt lost for that reason. Second, I felt lost professionally. I grew up believing that jobs were merit-based, that if you work hard and you're an honorable person, then when you graduate, someone will hand you a job and say, go for it. We believe in you. So I spent seven years learning Latin, German, and French, and researching obscure figures, and writing and writing and writing. And at the end of this process, I realized that working hard does not matter at all. (laughs) There are 300 people just as qualified as I am. And what I realized is this world is not merit-based. It is connection-based. It's about networking and getting to know people and calling in favors. Hey, remember when I lied for you? Get me a job. So that's a game I did not know I was supposed to be playing. I would not have learned Latin if I knew that that was a game I was supposed to be playing. And I think I'd be very bad at it if I tried. So now, big picture. I'm not sure what to do with my life. Uh, I feel like I spent seven years pursuing a path that might ultimately lead nowhere. And now I'm just kind of walking in the dark, uncertain where I should be heading. So maybe the details in your life in your life are a little different than mine, but perhaps the feelings are the same, and the feelings are these. Low-grade frustration with your own limitations. God, I wish I was different, but this is what I got. Uh, An increasing sense of futility. Even if I could change something, I don't know how I would. And disillusionment. Disillusionment with how the world stacks up to the one you're expecting. So we're not missing children, we're not drug addicts, We still have our mental faculties about us. We appear fine and together on the outside, but maybe secretly we're lost. And secret lostness is what makes Zacchaeus such a compelling figure. Now, up until this point, the gospel writer Luke has held up various prototypes of lostness. He writes about blind beggars. He writes about grieving widows. He writes about decaying lepers, the walking dead, prodigal sons, people who have been demon-possessed or paralyzed. These people were obviously lost to everybody in the first century. But Zacchaeus is not any one of these things. In fact, verse 2, we find out he's extremely rich, and he's also a chief tax collector, head honcho tax collector. That is, he found professional and material success in the eyes of the world. Yet in verse 10, when Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost, he intimates that in some level, on some place in his heart, Zacchaeus was lost. So if Zacchaeus was so successful in the eyes of the world, how was he lost? Number one, he was lost socially. Last year, probably, like many of you, I was shocked by the amount of taxes I had to pay after the tax laws had changed. And the strangest thing happened to me after I got a letter from my accountant telling me how much I owed, I got super angry at her. 
And I called her up. I go, what's going on? And then she's like, da, 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 da. I'm like, uh, what tax law? And she goes, da, 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 da. And I'm like, well, why didn't you do something about it? She goes, I'm not a lawmaker. I'm your accountant. She had nothing to do with it. But when it comes to your money and somebody feeling like they're taking what they shouldn't be taking, I started getting irrationally mad. Now, maybe the same thing happened with Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. He would go around taking people's money. But it's even worse for him. He works for the Roman Empire, and he's Jewish, and he's collecting taxes from Jewish people. So for many Jewish people, Rome was an oppressive state, and Zacchaeus would have been a traitor. Furthermore, in verse 8, Zacchaeus basically admits that he was a corrupt tax collector, taking more than he needed in order to enrich himself. So even though professionally he was successful, even though he was materially very comfortable, in fact, his job and his money actually made him an outcast amongst his own people in the town of Jericho. Zacchaeus was hated, hence lost in his relationships. Now, there's only one other thing we know about Zacchaeus, and that is this. He was short. He was short. Now, whenever I think about this, I think about two things. First, I think about the Skilo song from the 90s. I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl who looked good. I would call her. And I think about a friend uh, who was a pastor and the story he told me when he was counseling the single girl. He said, she was complaining about how superficial guys in New York are and how they don't commit because they always feel like new people are going to be coming in. So she said, all they care about is looks, all they keep thinking is, oh, is someone better coming around the corner? And what's worse, even Christian guys don't see that there's so many great Christian girls out there that they could and should be dating. And then my friend says, well, what about John? He's mature. He's got good character. And without skipping a beat, she goes, he's too short. <laughs> so being short in our society comes with some consequences. But why is Zacchaeus' stature important? And why does Luke mention it? Verse 3 says, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but he could not because he was small. For Luke, and in this story, shortness equals spiritual blindness. Shortness equals spiritual blindness. Zacchaeus wanted to see Jesus, but he couldn't because of his height. Now, if you've ever sat behind a really tall person in a movie or at a Broadway show, you know exactly how he feels. If you've ever been stuck in traffic surrounded by all these huge trucks and you can't move and you want to see what's going on further down the road, you know how this feels. I remember feeling this way at Disney World waiting for the fireworks, but the only thing I could see were people's butts and pockets. And I was like, what's going on? If you have that feeling, you understand how Zacchaeus feels. There's nothing wrong with his eyes. He was simply too short to see Jesus. Zacchaeus was effectively blind, and the same is probably true for us in some way. Our eyes work fine, but there are certain things that prevent us from seeing Christ. I'm not going to go through a list. Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's your jobs. Maybe I think we're all on some level aware of what it is that keeps us from understanding and seeing Christ. And it's at this point in the story that two surprising things happen. First surprising thing, verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass this way. A successful man, a rich man, climbs up a street lamp to see somebody down the way. It's a little weird. Um, and what's worse, he climbs and he runs into a crowd of people that hate him, and he's short, he knows he's short, and he basically advertises how short he is. Guys, 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 I can't see. Let me climb up this tree. So he embraces the things that make him lost. 
Now, this is surprising because when we're lost, most of us actually develop coping strategies to ignore the fact that we're lost. We run away from it by looking into our smartphones, we're immersed in podcasts, we're enchanted by Netflix, and we lull ourselves to sleep in this hum of electric Wi-Fi entertainment instead of really dealing with the real problems in our life. Uh, if you're having problems in one area of your life, maybe you overcompensate by going to another area of your life. So if you're having problems at home, maybe you start staying late at work. Maybe you start volunteering for work trips, going, I'll go. Where is it? California? Sure, I'll go. Where is it? Russia? Yeah, I'll go. <laughs> you overcompensate and you go, I just don't want to deal with this part. And maybe that's what Zacchaeus did. He goes, you know, I'm short. People don't like me, so I'm going to be the best I can at my job. I'm going to make all this money. You don't like me? Fine, I'll show you, and I'll take it out on you. But at this moment in his life, Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming, and something changes. He doesn't hide. He doesn't overcompensate for his lostness. He embraces it. He runs into the crowd of people that hate him. He climbs up a tree and goes, where is he? Where is he? Now, when Jen was um, six months pregnant with Arlo, we wanted to get out of the city to enjoy the fall weather. So we left early in the morning and started hiking in the Hudson Valley around 10 o'clock in the morning. And the plan was this. Let's go hiking for two hours, go into Cold Springs or one of the towns in the area, get a nice, delicious lunch, and then let's come back and just enjoy the rest of the afternoon in the city. So we got to this place. I picked up a map. I read the instructions. I read the instructions, and I saw that the blue path was a circular path that's about two hours. So I'm like, oh, this is perfect. Start at 10, 12 o'clock, be eating lunch by 12.15. The fall air was crisp, the leaves tinged with orange and yellow. We stopped for breaks and said, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. <laughs> Tell me about what's been on your mind lately. What do you think life will be like once baby comes? We put our smartphones away. We said, we're just going to enjoy this. No Instagram, no pictures. But two hours after we started our hike, we were nowhere near where we had begun. So I checked my phone, and it turns out that rather than walking in a circle, we walked north straight for two hours, which means to get back, we'd have to walk back straight for two hours. And Jen was like, like pregnant, like pregnant, pregnant. And as I mentioned, um, we wanted to eat lunch at 12, so we didn't bring any food because <laughs> like we need to save our appetite. So let's pause for a second. So. What do you do in this situation? It would be ridiculous to deny that we are lost, right? It'd be like, no, we're not lost, we're fine. <laughs> Let's just keep walking until we die. Or we could distract ourselves and be like, oh, I know I'm lost, but I just don't want to deal with it. Um, let's watch a movie on Netflix and just to see what happens. And you also don't overcompensate for it. I didn't say, hey, Jen, I know I got us lost, but guess what? I'm really good at guitar. That would not <laughs> have helped the situation. <laughs> The way you get out of lostness is not by hiding it or running away from it or overcompensating for it. And one more thing, as I mentioned, we're starting to face problems where determination, brute strength, our own skills are not enough to get us out of it. There's only one way to get out of this type of lostness. You raise your hand, you say, I'm lost, can somebody help me? Which is exactly what we did. We called the parks office, they told us how to get to the nearest major road, and 20 minutes later, this beautiful, large, bearded, flannel-wearing Irishman in a <laughs> pickup truck named Declan, who worked for the parks office, came and picked us up, and we rode in the back of his truck, and we were at lunch by 1 o'clock, so not too bad. When you're lost, you have to embrace it and bring it to God and say, God, I'm lost. I don't know how to get out of this mess. Please help me. Uh, in the previous chapter of Luke, 
Jesus paints a picture of how this works in our relationship with him, and it works like this. He tells a story. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee has respect. He is loved by his peers in terms of the moral quality of his life. He seems perfect. And he approaches God in this place, and he basically stands in the front and says, God, I thank you. I'm not like that person. I'm not like this person. I'm not like that person. I am righteous. Tax collector can't walk forward. He stands in the back. He can't look up, and he says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, help me. I need help. By climbing this tree, Zacchaeus said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I'm lost. Help me. Help me. But <clears throat> that is only surprise number one. Second, Jesus stops. He stops at the tree where this little man is looking for him. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down. I have to stay at your house today. I have to stay there. And he, s he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. This passage teaches us an important thing about God. Surprise number two. God is an extrovert, and he loves spending time with people. You can see this throughout the Bible. Israel's wandering around in the desert 40 years, and he gives them a portable tabernacle where his presence can dwell. When David and Solomon established a unified kingdom, God gave them a temple where he could dwell in a powerful and miraculous way. God loves being with us so much that he gave his only son who took on flesh and lived and walked among us, and even now he pours out his spirit as we gather, as we worship, so that we can feel his presence here. And Jesus, you can hear this in his voice, he says, I have to stay at your house tonight. And this is surprising for a couple reasons. First, it's surprising because the people in Zacchaeus' own town thought he was a sinner. Jesus was a morally righteous person and a potential Messiah candidate. And he decides to spend time with this corrupt outcast. Ooh, that's not the guy, Jesus, that you want to be associated with. It's surprising for another reason that we know, but that the people in Jericho don't know. By Luke 19, Jesus is just about to finish up his earthly ministry. He's purposely marching towards Jerusalem. And in the chapter before, he warns his disciples again for a third time, I'm going to the cross, meaning it's something that's heavy on his mind. Yet, the last thing he does before he enters Jerusalem is spend time with Zacchaeus, this short little tax collector. Right before the most important moment of his life, he's filled with fear, he's filled with anxiety. Jesus says, I gotta spend time with you. Now, Zacchaeus climbed a tree to get a glimpse of Jesus and Jesus responded by giving him more than a glimpse. He gave Zacchaeus his very own presence. And it's his presence that changes Zacchaeus' life. It's his presence that changes Zacchaeus' life. One of the things I love about this story is nothing external changes for Zacchaeus. Nothing changes. Jesus doesn't address his social isolation by giving him a new job or a new calling. He doesn't say, hey, leave behind your tax collecting booth and come and follow me. He does not perform a miracle and say, oh, you wish you could be a little bit taller? You wish you could be a baller? Boom! And then Zacchaeus is like six foot nine. He doesn't do any of that. No miracles, no signs, no wonders. The only thing that happens is that Jesus stops and spends time with Zacchaeus, and that makes all of the difference. As soon as Jesus stops in verse 5 and acknowledges who Zacchaeus is, it says Zacchaeus is filled with joy. 
He repents and he becomes exceedingly generous. That is the miracle of Christ's presence. He's still the same tax collector. He's still short. All the things that made him lost are still there, but he spent time with Christ and it changes him. Zacchaeus was secretly lost, but he climbed a tree and said, here I am, and Jesus found him. So in closing, there's just a few things I wanted to mention. Uh, there have been a few times in my life where I really felt that God's presence was powerful, so powerful, so real that I could touch him. And when I reflect on when those moments were, of course they come up when I felt lost, confused, or seeking help. I remember being a sophomore in college, trying to figure out what I should do with my life. Now I'm a 37-year-old trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life. But it's more appropriate, I guess, when you're 19 than now. But at 19, I was trying to figure it out. I said, oh, should I become a doctor? Should I go into seminary? Should I switch majors and go into business or something like that? So that year, I prayed, I fasted, I sought guidance, and I desperately wanted to hear from God. And it's during that time that I had one of the most powerful spiritual experiences I ever had. We were praying at a retreat for, I don't know, hours and hours and hours. And then I got the gift of tongues, which is, you know, whatever. I got the gift of tongues. It doesn't matter in terms of what the actual gift was. What, the, what matters is the effect it had on me, which was, wow, God is real and he's with me. That's how I left it. And I kept asking throughout that year, God, what do you want me to do in my life? Do you want me to be a doctor? Do you want me to be a pastor? Do you want me to do something else? Doctor, pastor, something else. Doctor, pastor, something else. And he answered me and he said, Fred, I want you to be humble. And that was it. And then he moved on. So he didn't give me an answer. He didn't change my life. He just spoke to me and that made a big difference. Um, as I mentioned, my, when my dad died, uh, we, he died from cancer. So we had a long time to kind of deal with it. And that was another time where God was with me in a powerful way. We were in the hospice. We spent time saying thank you, goodbye, praying, singing hymns. And in there, there were no miracles. There were no signs. There were no wonders, just God's presence. And it nailed home for us the power of the resurrection. One day, I'll see you again. Now, I bring up these two memories because at this stage of my life, I feel lost again. <laughs> And I don't feel like the joyful and generous Zacchaeus at the end of this passage. I'm Zacchaeus in verse 4, short and looking for a tree to climb. Um, and I say that because I don't know yet how my life will turn out. But I have faith that if I beat my chest and say, God, help me, he will help me. Let's pray.